Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week and another episode of Scale Up. Now, I reckon that you can tell a lot about a person by how they show up, how they show up in life, how they treat people. And today's guest is someone that I think you will agree after listening to the show absolutely personifies this point. Now, what often happens when I have a guest on Scale Up is we chat for a while before we press record. And I do that for a number of reasons, but a lot of it is really just to kind of get a sense of what they want to get out of the show, how they can make a difference to all of you guys, all the listeners. And quite often people come in, they're busy, they're not that well prepared, but you know, we make the most of it. Other times you have someone who comes on and they have done the work, they've researched you as in me and the show to a high degree and they literally show up ready to go with absolutely focused contribution, all of that stuff to make it a great conversation. And I just want to call out from the outset that today's guest, Chip Conley, is one such person. And I am very, very grateful for when that happens and just want to say thank you to you, Chip, before we start the show, because you are someone who absolutely does everything that I just said. So who is Chip Conley? Well, Chip Conley has had an incredible career in the hospitality industry. He was Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy and has done a lot more things since then. But the key thing we want to talk about today is not so much his very, very checkered career in the world of business. What we want to talk about today is midlife. In fact, we want to talk about learning to love midlife because that is the title of Chip's new book, The 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better With Age. I am wiser today than I was 10 years ago. I have better friendships, deeper friendships in my life. I have created space in my life because I've learned how to edit. You know, I've done the, what we at MEA call the great midlife edit. So these are all examples of things where you just say, okay, um, I'm gonna focus on what gets better with age. And this is a bit of a personal conversation because some of you know that I'm approaching my 50th birthday. So I am very much defined as being in midlife. And sometimes as you go through that, you are reflecting back on the things that have happened. You are reflecting back on successes and dare I say it, failures, but you're also trying to craft what's next. And what's really interesting about what Chip does these days, he's also got a group as well around this sort of stuff, is that he helps you to really understand how to navigate age and more importantly, how to move forward with a renewed sense of purpose and possibility. But actually, who knew that after 50, we get happier? Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So I reckon you are gonna get a lot out of this show, particularly if you are around the age of 40, 50, maybe 60, maybe you've had that great career. Maybe you are trying to think about what is next for you. And what I really love about Chip is he thinks that things get better with age. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. So sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with the amazing Chip Conley. Here we go. Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. I am delighted to have someone on the show today that I have been 
following for a little while, I've been listening to him speak on some of my favorite podcasts. And there's one in particular where he had a conversation with Rich Roll. And I remember listening to that. I listened to it a couple of times, actually, because it was really, really good. And I think the reason for that is it resonates with where I am in my life and where I know a lot of you as, as my listeners are in their lives. And the way that this gentleman talks about it, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it before. So welcome to the show, Chip Conley. Thank you, Nick Bradley. Um, what, a, what an honor to be here. Excellent. And I better, I probably should say what we're going to talk about now, consider I've just built it up. <laughs> we're going to be talking about, we're going to talk about midlife, but we're going to not talk about it in terms necessarily of midlife crisis, because a lot of people talk about that. We're going to talk about it more in terms of opportunity fulfillment and what it actually means to have more wisdom when you reach that sort of milestone. And what I'm really interested to hear about, you know, your story, Chip, is I know you've gone through some very interesting transitions yourself, hence now that we talk about this stuff. So welcome to the show. Let's kick off if we can. What is it about this concept of midlife wisdom that is so yeah. interesting to you? Well, I, you know, uh, well, first of all, honored to be here. Uh, thank you, Nick. And and given that you're on the precipice of 50, um, <laughs> uh, I think this is a particularly appropriate topic for you. I, I happen to be 62. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we know as a society is that generally speaking, um, ageism is the last socially expect acceptable ism out there. And we make jokes about it. And we have, you know, greeting cards for our birthdays that make fun about it. And and yet the, the thing that's really interesting is that um, the U-curve of happiness research, which is social science research, um, shows that generally speaking, people see a decline in life satisfaction till uh, from early 20s till around 45 to 50. Mm -hmm. You bottom out around 45 to 50, and then you're happier with each decade after that. And so it's a U-curve, but actually who knew that after 50, we get happier? Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So... Uh, this is delightful the, to hear, by the way. I, this is like, because, yeah. you know, just to, just to jump in on that, because I think there's this a perception, certainly within my peer group, right? This is yeah. when I when I heard you first speak about this, I thought this is really interesting because, you know, I see this this mix, if you like. Some people kind of feel that as they get older, everything's going backwards. You know, yeah. their body isn't functioning necessarily as they wanted to, everything. And, and they maybe get more awareness of how much time they potentially have left. You have that. And then you have people who are absolutely loving life. Mm. Right. And, and, and it's kind of the dichotomy, if you like, or the paradox between those two things, which is interesting to me. So, so well, let's, yeah. So let's dissect, let's, let's unpack something. We're going to get back to wisdom in a moment, but let's unpack what's going on around 45 to 50 and then what's going on after 50. Sure. So um, I, so what's going on around 45 to 50 is disappointment equals expectations minus reality. <laughs> so, you know, in our 20s and our 30s and early 40s, we have built up a set of hopes and dreams that have become expectations. And it's often in around mid, mid 40s that we start to realize, you know what, I'm not going to be climbing Everest, or I'm not going to be president of the United States, or I'm not going to have, you know, uh, a million pounds in the bank. Um, and, or whatever, or I didn't marry my soulmate. And there's an element of like, hmm, you start to realize that there's some disappointment kicking in. There's also a sense around that age where your body does start to show some deterioration. And often your parents are later in life and you're starting to see mortality a little bit more clearly. Um, there's, there's also the fact that this is a time where people often have a lot of spinning plates. 
Yeah. You know, the first half of our life is about accumulating, accumulating knowledge, friends, uh, responsibilities, obligations, marriage, kids, stuff. And the second half of our life is about editing. And at MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, a, a program at the world's first midlife wisdom school that I created, um, we have something called the Great Midlife Edit because it is around around 50 years old or so. Or But midlife, to be honest with you, midlife is now defined by sociologists as 35 to 75. What? Oh, is it, it's a what? It's a, it's that's a like that's like that's like that's like most of your life, right? Well, it's <laughs> partly because it, it because people are feeling irrelevant earlier in their careers mm. than before, and they they're going to be staying in their careers longer and living longer. So, long story short, is that's what's going on around forty five to fifty. The spinning plates, too many things going on. What happens after fifty? Uh, and again, your mileage may vary. It's not everybody's the same, but on average, what's going on is you start to realize you should not care as much about what other people think about you as you have. You know, as Mark Manson would say, you know, you're learning not to give a fuck. Excuse my language, okay. but it's it's not his, his. When he said that, he and when he wrote that book, it was not about saying I don't give a fuck about anything. It was more like there's certain things I care about, and I'm just going to put my time and attention into those, and just and be more discerning, especially around what people think. Um, what else gets better with age? Emotional intelligence gets better with age. Emotional moderation. We are less reactive, and as you asked earlier, wisdom. Wisdom. Just because you're 70 doesn't mean you're wise. There, I've met 30-year-olds who are wiser than a 70-year-old. But wisdom is a practice. Um, and it is based upon the raw material of your life experience. So the older you are, the more of that raw material you have. So let me tell you, do you mind if I tell mm. you a little practice that I... No, no, please do, because this is interesting. I definitely want to go a little bit deeper into wisdom in a sec, but yeah. let's, let's keep yeah. going. Well, let me give you the, I'll give you a wisdom practice that I've been doing since age 28. I'm 62. So I've been doing it for 34 years. I was, I started a boutique hotel company um, and grew it uh, to be one of the second largest in the US. Um, but I started when I was 26. And at 28, I, I realized how much of an idiot I was as a CEO. And I felt like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And, <laughs> and so one day, one Friday, I limped into the wink weekend and my company, I, at that point, just had one one boutique hotel, ultimately had 52, um, but had one hotel. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I took a journal off of my bookshelf and I wrote on the cover of it, my wisdom book. And I, that weekend decided I'd make a practice of spending 20 to 30 minutes each week, making sense of what I'd learned that week, both personally and professionally, but mostly professionally. And these were like the, often the things that, that were hard to learn that week, the things that were sort of painful. And so I'd write the lesson and I would write um, how it will serve me moving forward. Give me an example of that. So what's, what's one of the most memorable lessons? Well, here's one from the early days. And again, this is so obvious to me now at my age, but back then it wasn't obvious. So at age 28, we had a hotel that was, we had the Loma Prieta earthquake, an earthquake in San Francisco that meant yep. like no, nobody was coming to San Francisco. And so I had one hotel, it was in San Francisco, nobody was coming. So I was looking for a way going into the holidays for to promote things. And I, was, I had a marketing idea for the holidays and it was a crazy idea. Now I had, had a leadership team of seven people and two of them were doubters by nature. They were sort of critics. And I went into that meeting to present to the team and I was the founder and CEO. And so like, I, you know, I had a certain amount of power, but I went into the meeting to present something and I didn't present it to those two people one-on-one -on -one first to get their point of view and their fingerprints mm, okay. on. Got it. And instead I presented to the whole group 
And I had, it was my one and only chance because the holidays were coming ahead. And if we didn't make a decision on that in that meeting, we weren't going to do it. And these two guys just totally you know, said all kinds of bad things about the idea. And it was with that experience that that weekend I wrote, if I'm going to present a slightly controversial idea to a group of people that has some natural doubters in it, present it to the doubters before the mm, meeting. Okay. Very yeah. obvious to me today, not so obvious to me at age 28. So I would have three, four, eight of those every week. And now I have 34 years of that. Now a team could do this as well. So imagine if a team, like tomorrow, our, our team for MEA, for the Modern Elder Academy is doing this, where all the leadership team on a Zoom call is going to say, here was my key lesson of the quarter. Uh, and then as a team, we're going to talk about what was our key lesson as a group. So yeah, wisdom is important, it's, especially in the era of AI, when all the world's knowledge is so accessible uh, and commodified, wisdom is this human quality that we learn over time. I think you've answered this just by the way you described that story, but I was going to say, what, what, what defines wisdom for you then? Is it, is it the accumulation of these things over time? But obviously it's got to be about not just the amount, it's also got to be the quality and the impact it has on you. Let's define wisdom to start with. So my definition of wisdom is metabolized experience. So your life lessons digested, mm -hmm. okay. which leads to distilled compassion. So the, 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 the first part of that, that uh, definition makes sense. Second, second part need, needs some explanation. Yeah. So metabolized experience, digested life lessons, et cetera. So yes, if you understand them, you understand how you're going to learn from them and it makes you wiser, more savvy, but also more thoughtful and discerning. Great. But wisdom is a social good, has been all the way back to Greek times. So wisdom is not the same as being smart, shrewd, or savvy. Metabolizing your experience for your own benefit, smart, shrewd, savvy, all fit that. But doing so for the sake of supporting others is the, is the key for wisdom. So wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So what does distilled compassion mean? It means when someone, feel, when someone gets a piece of wisdom from me that feels very personalized and customized to what they need in that particular moment, they feel some that I am being a compassionate you know, uh, mentor possibly, and that I actually distilled down what I know to what they needed. And, and so that's why I use that as the definition, um, because it is a combination of your own life experience shared with someone else in a way that feels very personalized. Wow. And that, that to, to some extent is a skill in its own right, isn't it? To be able it, to, yeah. I mean, it comes back into empathy to some extent, being able mm -hmm. to kind of put yourself in someone else's position. Is that it, why you yeah. said beforehand, some people can be all the way through to 70 or 80 or whatever age and, and not necessarily be wise. Well, they cannot be wise for two reasons. Number one is they're not metabolizing their experience. Mm. They, they keep making the same mistake over and over again. They don't see the lesson in it. And secondly, they're not, they're not being sort of uh, generous in sharing what they've learned along the way in a, in a compassionate way. You know, your war stories are not wisdom. Just because someone's talking about how the world used to be and says, oh yeah, you know, the, life used to be so much better. It's like, that, that is not wisdom. That is just nostalgia and nostalgia is not the same. So uh, mm. yes, you know, this, there's, a, there's an art to mentorship. Um, I think there's two kinds of mentors. There's the there's the librarian who has the know-how and know-who. 
and you ask the, your librarian mentor questions, they answer them. And then there's the mentor who's the confidant. And the confidant is the one who you share your, you know, your private stories with. And the confidant is not just confidential about sharing those stories. The confidant is the one who gives you confidence. Mm. And I learned that from, you know, when I was at Airbnb, uh, with the uh, with one of my direct reports, and she's French, and she said, "For me, confidantship means the person who gives you confidence." Nice. I, like, oh, I haven't I heard that, that. Uh, turn of phrase before. I love that. I love <laughs> the fact that when you're the confidant, you're not the one answering the questions. You're the one, like the librarian is. You're the one asking the questions. Wow. So let's go because you alluded to this a couple of times here. So successful business, you know, fifty-two, I believe you said hotels. Yep. And I know that you were then advising to Airbnb, but I also know you had a couple of different inflection points. So let's let's go through your story here a bit, because I want to know, how, how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I had my my 24 years of being CEO of the company I founded, Joie de Vivre. Uh, it's now a Hyatt brand. I had a dark night of the soul in my late 40s, um, and I had an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. Uh, and after I'd given a speech and I went flatline, I died. And, um, so that was a, like a hotelier wake up call because while I had loved being a hotelier up to that point, I was really loving writing books and giving speeches and I wanted to have more freedom in my life. Um, I started my company based upon creativity and freedom and 22 years into running the company at that point, I didn't feel much creativity or freedom. And so I didn't think I had an option of potentially selling the company at the bottom of the Great Recession, but I decided to, and I took a huge financial mm, bath. It was not a good thing to sell mm -hmm. it when I did. I still did well selling it, but I, um, if I waited three or four years till after the Great Recession, it would have been better. But I knew I was supposed to end that. So it was from this from this near death experience. Yeah, that yeah. was the point where you said, "That's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go this direction, not the one that I was on." It was that, and that I and losing uh, a handful of friends to suicide, all of them in midlife, all of them men, and one of them who was named Chip, mm. and and when I lost my great friend and my insurance broker named Chip, same name I had. Imagine going to the funeral for a guy named Chip, who has taken his own life at a time when you're going through your dark night of the soul. Everything in my life was sort of falling apart at that point. So um, it, it just, it woke me up and it ultimately, it, it gave me a note to myself, note to self, hey, midlife, midlife is, you know, full of crisis. I, I now see, see midlife as a chrysalis, um, the idea that it's a time for transformation, uh, as is true for the ca caterpillar to butterfly journey. Um, <clears throat> on the other side of that, after I sold the company, I had some space in my life and I was in my early fifties and, you know, I was, I started a a business focusing on the 300 best festivals in the world and a website for that. And I, I was on the board of Burning Man. I was a founding board member for the Burning Man Festival. And I, I was just sort of having a good life. I wrote a book called Emotional Equations that became a New York Times bestseller. I was like, I like this portfolio life. I could do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Did you miss anything that you left behind? I What I missed more than anything was being, it, when you're in the portfolio life, trying a lot of different things, being on boards and so what's What you're missing is a team of people that you're seeing every day and growing with that team. And yeah, I had a little startup that was doing this, but it was like, you know, a total of five people. And that's when I got uh, about 10 and a half years ago, a call from Brian Chesky, the 
founder of Airbnb. And he said, Chip, we've we've been watching you. We read your book, Peak, uh, which is about creating a uh, company, self-actualized culture. And um, long story short is we want you to come in and help us democratize hospitality and be the modern elder to the three founders who are basically about half my age. And they said a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds good. I don't like modern they, elder a whole did lot. They, did they define the term modern elder yeah, at this point? Yeah, they, they, they did. And okay. I was like, they didn't at first. At first it was okay. like, okay. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. I, you're just saying I'm old. But then, <laughs> but then we, got the, we got to the definition. I was like, oh, someone who's got the right alchemy of curiosity and wisdom, count me in for that. Um, and... I spent four years as the in-house mentor to the three founders as the head of global hospitality and strategy. And then three and a half years after that as um, a strategic advisor. And I loved it. <clears throat> I just loved it. And so whereas my late forties, I saw midlife as, you know, a crisis uh, that you try to avert or just get through. I saw my fifties as like the best decade of my life. So that U curve of happiness was very true for me. And it was during that time I decided um, after I became after I went from full time to this part time strategic advisor role, I decided to write a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. I decided to write it on a beach in Baja, which is part of Mexico. Yep, and um, I had a home, a home there. And one day I was going for a run on the beach, and I had a Baja aha. I had an epiphany, and the epiphany was why is it we have no midlife wisdom schools, a place where people could go to sort of cultivate and harvest their wisdom and then uh, repurpose it in new ways in the world. And so I decided to create that, that a campus, called it the Modern Elder Academy, which is better known as MEA. And we have year-round programs uh, at that beachfront campus in Baja. And in early next year, we'll have a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico with um, workshops there year round as well. So I've got a number of clients that I'm going to send your way. Thank <laughs> you. Let me, let me explain a little bit um, of my story because I think it kind of ladders up to this a little bit. Um, and I feel very grateful that I made a transition a little bit earlier. So it was kind of mid 40s, mm -hmm. but not that long ago. And, um, and that was the world of private equity, doing deals, selling companies, getting intoxicated with the money that you can make from that. And I liked what you said beforehand about, you know, compassion or, you know, the idea that there's, there's more fulfillment that comes from, you know, helping others. I was not that person. Right. Mm -hmm. So the thing I did to change that, well, I had, I had a, a dark moment, <laughs> an interesting night. Um, and after that, I ended up starting this podcast to share my story, perspectives, information. And the, the vision back then was really a cathartic one for me, really, to kind of almost give myself a bit of self-therapy. But what it came, you know, it became very quickly was a way of giving back, which made me feel much more fulfilled, which then mm. took me on a totally different path. And if I think, you know, the build-up to that was interesting, right? It was fun mm -hmm. in the early years, and then it became really hard, really, really hard. And then now what I do now, I'm looking forward to my next decade, like massively so, because I made those choices. I share that with you because I'm really curious of the people who, you know, have that moment, like we both did in different ways, mm -hmm. and then go on to do things that create maybe more fulfillment and impact and all those things versus the ones that don't and dread maybe 
their fifties or their sixties or that, what, what's, what have you yeah. seen as the difference? What's, what's happened? Is it, do you have to have that moment to make the transition? You definitely don't have to have a particular moment in my case, a near death experience. Um, what, what often you do need though, and I don't think this is true across everybody, but it's true for some people is you need to have external circumstances that force your hand a little bit. It might be a divorce. It might be mm. a, a company that goes belly up. It might be um, uh, uh, getting losing a job. It might be losing a parent. It might be empty nest, having your kids go away and then being with your your spouse and realizing we don't know each other and we don't even like each other. <laughs> um, so often it the precipitating um, thing that happens to, that leads to an action is something that is a transition that's not going so well and you need some help. And whether that's through a coach or whether that's through a workshop or that's through a book uh, or through you know therapy or spiritual or religious programming, there's people start to seek something out when it, something beyond themselves is going on. Um, I would say that the people who actually then come to our programs, whether we have online programs as well, as well as the campus, is generally the people who actually succeed and flourish, and it's most people who come through our programs, is they learn how to move from a fix to a growth mindset. Mm, okay. So Got Carol it. Dweck at Stanford yeah. popularized the idea of a fixed mindset and growth mindset. She said basically a fixed mindset is you think you have a fixed capacity uh, of, of talent, let's say, and your job is to optimize that. And in so doing, you're trying to prove yourself. It's usually very externally focused. And you define success as winning. She says that, you know, moving to a growth mindset is what we need to do in our lives. And, and fixed mindset sometimes has some value to us, but a growth mindset has much more upside. And when you have a growth mindset, it's not about proving yourself. It's about improving yourself. And it's not about success being winning. It's about success being learning. Yeah. So the person who in their going into their fifties is willing to become a beginner again willing to actually try something out that they're not very good at, but to actually see if they can get into the flow of it, willing to actually have a sense of humor and care less what other people think of them or what it looks like to others. Mm, that's important. And I would also just say that the, that there's a shift that happens around 45 to 50, which is on average, again, it can happen at any point. And that that's the primary operating system of our life which has been our ego starts to shift to our soul. And what, it, how, what does that mean? It means somehow we start to ask the question, I am what, or say the mantra in our head, even if we don't say this, I am what survives me, which comes from Eric Erickson, famous developmental psychologist. And we start to see that we're at our happiest often, not when we're only in the pursuit of something, but when we are in the connection with something bigger than ourselves. And it is in that feeling, what you feel with your podcast, uh, Nick, in that feeling comes this sense of collective effervescence, being part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's powerful. And once we get that, the taste of that, it's not that we get rid of our ego, we don't. But the ego is not the primary operating system anymore. Does that make sense? No, well, it does. And I want to draw a line under what you just said, because I think it's one of the certainly one of the best articulations of the story that I've told about what's happened to me on, you know, this transition I've made, because, because mm -hmm. I was very much focused on myself. 
making money ego. I've, I've said quite often on this show, I would have literally walked over anybody for the next promotion or the next deal. <laughs> right. Then I had, you know, a certain number of things happen, which brought me back to earth, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And I went on a journey of discovery and personal development and, and started to realize, actually, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. So I went to um, a Tony Robbins event. A friend of mine advised me to go to that. Never been to anything like that in my life. I like, tried as this. this stupid thing. Anyway, I went to it <laughs> and cried my eyes out for days, right? As you do when you start to learn new things and it starts to open up different parts of your brain that you haven't connected with. And there was a quote by Zig Ziglar that was mentioned there, which I'd never heard before, which is the famous quote about, you know, if you help enough people get what they want in life, you'll have everything that you want and need in life. It's something like yeah. that. Yeah. And you know what, this is going to sound crazy, but I'd never even thought of that as an idea before. Yeah. Like, what, yeah. I, what if I help other people, that's going to make me feel both fulfillment and achievement is what, what is that craziness, right? It was like being, you know, smacked in the face, but that was the, the one thing that transitioned the change. I, I joke sometimes about the whole blue and red pill from the matrix, because yeah. once I had awareness of it, I couldn't go back. Hmm. And that was my story. So, so, you know, you've just articulated some of the reasons why that probably happened actually. And, and also the fact now that what I tend to focus more on is mission and purpose and impact. Yeah. And when I said before, I had about some of the people, my clients, a lot of my clients sell their companies, right? They make lots of money. They haven't necessarily gone through uh, a divorce yeah. or whatever or something, but they've gone through a major change. Selling a company is a transition for yes. sure. Yeah, not, not, not all transitions are bad. I mean, like there can be positive transitions, like selling a company can be a transition. And then you realize how much of your identity mm. what was attached That's to your word. role. That's the word. Like, yeah. And you become, you start to feel like a pip, a previously important person. Yeah. Well, we talk about the next act all the time. I, I often say to, I, I have a, a list of criteria. I say, listen, if you're, if you're not, at least at this point, thinking about your next act, what you're going to do next. And quite often it's about impact. Quite often it's not about necessarily going and doing what they did again. Um, the number one reason why people don't go through with the stuff that I work on is they get cold feet because 20, 30 years of their life is so attached. You know, their identity is so attached to what they've created and, and that's where they get stuck. Well, and they also, they also have this, the, uh, the success curse. And the success curse, Arthur Brooks wrote about it in his book, From Strength to Strength. Um, you are worried that because you've been successful in the past, the idea of a failure in your 50s, 60s or beyond is going to be a blemish. And therefore, you don't try. Mm. And um, so, again, that's a, that's, a, that's a fixed mindset. That's proving and winning as opposed to improving and learning. Um, I would also say one other thing, Nick, is, and that is that... Um, you, it was the Tony Robbins experience that was your catalyst. Well, the catalyst, the catalyst was my catalyst father, was, was, was my father yeah. dying and then me breaking my teeth in the middle of the night. Um, and then looking because, in the because mirror. You were because you were grinding your teeth? No, I actually went to bed one night and cracked the two molars on the right side here. Okay, okay. Lots of things were going on. But the reason I say that is I, I remember one really important point. It was, it was clear as day. I looked in the mirror at 3 a.m. and I said to myself, how the hell did you get here? Yeah, that was the that was the first thing. And then the decision or the action I took after that was ended up at this event literally three weeks later. So let's dissect this a little bit. So so there's a there's a there is often there's a precipitating event in, mm -hmm. in some way uh, or a precipitating thought even. So but it's the event that leads to the self-reflection that leads to the 
willingness to try something new that often is a catalyst partly because there's a social um, environment where a crucible for life-changing conversations has happened. Mm. And so that's sort of the, that, that I'm not saying that's how everybody does it. Sometimes someone will just say, I read fill in the blank, whatever the name of the book is. And my life changed forever after that, because I started taking the action plan around that and I got a coach and, and that's what happened. That's great. That's an alternative path. And I, that's a beautiful path. But for very many people, right, reading a book, they, 90, 92% of people never get to the, the last chapter of the book. <laughs> sorry, sorry, authors out there. It's you very know, true, the, isn't it? <laughs> the true stat. Like, the unread know. books of the world. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, you, you might have enjoyed it, but you just didn't get to the last chapter. And so the, so people don't often finish the book. Then they don't do the action planning associated with it. And if they're doing it alone, like they have no accountability partner or accountability buddy, um, nor do they have this sense of social the social commitment you've made uh, in, in an environment. I mean, that's why MEA succeeds. That's why we have people from 42 countries who've come to, to Baja to do our programs because of the fact that they know they're going to have a cohort of people that they're going to stay in touch with after they leave that are going to help and support them to live out their dreams. And what are some of the things that you do there? You said programs. So when someone's coming in there, let's say stage one, right? They're so, just exploring. Yeah. If they're coming, like if they're, they're the key, there are five key curriculum pillars that are in, integrated into any one of our workshops. <clears throat> so on your, on our website, you'll see workshops on a variety of different topics, but these five are on in any of them. Number one is how do we help people cultivate and harvest their wisdom? Um, similar to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the wisdom book and other things. Yeah. Number two is how do we reframe people's relationship with aging? Um, there's a fascinating study from uh, uh, Becca Levy from Yale, which showed that when people shift their mindset on aging from negative to positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. Which what, is does that, more- what does that mean? So, so meaning you mean basically like, I think I'm going to die and woe is me versus opportunity i can still do anything i want my best years are behind me yeah uh i'm too old to fill in the blank uh my body is giving out on me and i have nothing to offer the world etc um those are those are sort of like mindsets and if you can shift your mindset to saying uh my my emotional intelligence is growing with age um i am wiser today than i was 10 years ago I have better friendships, deeper friendships in my life. I have created space in my life because I've learned how to edit. You know, I've done the what we at MEA call the great midlife edit. So <clears throat> those are all examples of things where you just say, okay, um, I'm going to focus on what gets better with age. Um, so I have a, a new book coming called, out called Learning to Love Midlife. And the, the subtitle is 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And that all relates back to this idea of reframing aging. So I've given you two so far, cultivating yep. wisdom, reframing aging, moving from a fixed to a growth mindset. We've talked about that. Learning how to navigate midlife transitions because any transition has three stages to it. And then fifth, um, how do we embody a regenerative lifestyle and purpose um, in giving back in the world? <clears throat> so those are the five five elements. And there's it's a very experiential program. People can, if they want to learn how to surf, 
Um, they're going to learn yoga if they've never learned that. Um, they're going to learn how to share from like their like the, their essence, so to speak. Um, it's it's very much an opportunity for people to cultivate their wisdom, but also learn to be a beginner again. So I want to come back to the midlife edit because I'm intrigued by this. I know we've touched on it because my my feeling of what you said there is in order to create the space right for some of the things you want to do in the future yep. you have to then say no or get rid of or whatever the definition is that of the things you're currently doing take me through the edit how do you do it all right <clears throat> so this is in the first 24 hours someone's in the workshop yeah and up up to this point we have done a lot of things that have helped people to feel a deep sense of vulnerability and connection so this would not work if you didn't do those things first we've also helped people to see that liminality being in transition between two things is normal so don't don't feel like somehow you got life wrong. We've also helped people to see what gets better with age. <clears throat> so at, toward the end of the first afternoon, we do an exercise where there are 300 name tags on a table. Um, each name tag is either empty, which is about a third of them, or two thirds of them have a mindset or identity that's something that you wanna let go of or get rid of. So it could be, I always have to be the hero, or I'm too old to start a business or I'll never meet my soulmate, um, or um, I'm worried that I'm going to die poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all of these name tags on the table. <clears throat> By that point, you have sort of like start to, started to see yourself and what are the habits and mindsets. Um, or, you know, or they could be like, like I'm terrible at tech. Um, so, so you're associating with the, the statements potentially. So if I see something, that, am that's I right. So, so we all go over to the tables and you start to look at these, these uh, name tags and you put the sticker on your chest of those name tags that are mindsets, habits, archetypes. I always have to be the caregiver um, that no longer serve you. And you also can write down on some, you know, some blank ones, the, the ones that are more customized to yourself. And then we do a, an exercise where people actually look at each other's name tags. And I won't go, I won't explain exactly what happens there because I want to keep it somewhat confidential. Yep. And then ultimately at the end of that exercise, which is a very vulnerable exercise, we end out at the fire pit overlooking the ocean at sunset. And everybody has written on a piece of paper, the mindsets, or archetypes or ways of being and habits that aren't serving them anymore. One at a time, they get up, they say, say to the group, this is what I'm letting go of. They throw it in the fire and then they say, and here's what I'm going to replace it with. And that's within the first day of wow. a, a week long journey. And you can imagine that's that editing process all of a sudden opens people up to say, okay, what's next? Wow. Well, that sounds incredibly powerful. I mean, just, just the, I mean, I'm sort of trying to sort of feel it as you're talking about it. And and when people, I mean, obviously there's more to it. We won't have time today to go through the whole thing. And plus, if people want to do it, they can reach out and obviously get in touch with you. Yeah. Um, but let's jump to the end a little bit here. I just want to kind of, you know, so that the day seven, right? People are kind of finishing up. What's, what's, what do you see? What, what are some of the expressions? You know, do you, do people look different? Do they look like, oh my like God, the way to the, you know, physically? I wish. I, people have said to us all the time, you should take a photo of everybody when they arrive and then a photo when they leave. What people feel is lighter, certainly happier. Um, I think what they feel is they have more options available to them. 
it's remarkable how as we get into midlife, speaking broadly, we feel like we don't have as many options as we thought mm. we did. And um, so we had a we had a, a litigation attorney who had been doing it for 25, 30 years, and she hated how being a litigator had changed her personality, made her very aggressive. She tended to argue a lot. It seeped into the rest of her life. And as a teenager, or as a, you know, even younger, she would hang out with her grandma and cook pies. And so she did not come to MEA with the idea of becoming a baker and opening a, a bakery. But that's ultimately what she did. About a year after she left MEA, she she wound down her litigation practice and, and became a baker. And she's loving it. So the, that was an option. She had enough money in the bank to be able to do it. She had a lot of passion for it. Now she wants to actually create a business that's selling the, the baked goods to, to supermarkets. <clears throat> so you can, you can change your life. And, and you can do it even more likely when you have the tools to do it and you have the support to do it. And so what yeah. I think we see more than anything else is by the seventh day, or we have also mastery programs that are five days long. Um, we see people who just say, you know what? I know what's next for me. And it doesn't have to be just in the professional area. It could be in the personal area. Um, and I, this group of people are, are going to hold me accountable and be my support. Love it. Let me ask you a couple more questions. And I want to ask more of a personal one now. What was yeah. what was Chip like before you had that near-death experience? If you were going to describe yourself, if I was talking to one of your friends or whatever, <clears throat> versus yeah. Chip today? Well, I would say I was a little bit similar to you. Uh, probably not. It from what you've self-described, I wouldn't yep. say I was as far in that direction as being incredibly self-driven, self-motivated, self um Self-obsessed. Self-obsessed, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I had a certain amount of that. Um, but I think what I did have was, uh, what I for sure had was I, I wanted, I didn't care as much about money. I cared a ton about being an admiration addict. I wanted you to admire me. Mm. And I cared a lot about that. Um, so that meant I needed to go out and accomplish and succeed in ways that were visible and public. Um, I was damn good at getting press for myself and my business, but let's make sure that myself goes first. <laughs> um, I was writing books. I was giving speeches. You know, I was, I was living a life that was very, very dedicated to caring what everybody thought of me, about, about me. And um, what I'd say happened was I started to realize that almost all of us are less focused on other people than we are on ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, I if I make a mistake at something, like the world's, I may be the harshest critic, but the rest of the world maybe forgot about it five minutes later. Um, and, you know, it's that Maya Angelou quote, you know, people won't, won't remember what you said and what you did, but they'll remember the way they made you feel. Mm. And, and that quote, it's interesting, the first MEA cohort we ever had all of our cohorts are named. They they name self name and they named themselves after Maya, the Maya, the Maya, and it was partly because of that quote, the idea that people won't remember what they what you did or what you said, but they'll remember the way you made that you feel. And I've always I've always cared about that. I'm a hospitality guy, so I'm, I've always been a bit of a people pleaser. But that shifted so that it's not wasn't about how I made them feel in the sense of like it, it being in my presence because they admired me. No. 
it was how they made, I made them feel in terms of how I made them feel about themselves. And, um, and I'm damn good at that now. And I don't do it to be admired. I do it because I love, I love making people feel good. I love bringing joy to people. My company was called Joie de Vivre. So joy, creating Joie de Vivre, joy of life for people is really woven to, into who I am. But it is less now about, you know, Chip's sense of accomplishment being paramount in order for me to feel successful. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's a great, a great answer to that. I mean, I, it's it's defined a little bit um under the under the word significance, right? Or or being yeah. or wanting to be overly significant, and yeah. and what what's interesting, I think, is of course it's not for everybody. You know, this this there's definitely a connection between probably the, the stories that you know we've told about our personal situation. But I often find that you know other friends who are the same age, you know, late forties, mm -hmm. they're starting to. They're starting to let go more of the ego mm -hmm. because it's not serving them the way maybe it did right or their understanding of it and they're starting to ask the question there's got to be more than this yeah, yeah. and it's almost it's an awareness that comes and it, it's fascinating it, it, it's the question is that is this all there is and you know there's in the us we have the pursuit of happiness um but as i said in one of my ted talks you know when you look at the definition of pursuit in some dictionaries it's to chase with hostility. <laughs> so, to so are we pursuing happiness with hostility? In some ways, we are. And as my good friend Tony Shea, God, God rest his soul, yeah. um, said, you know, said, uh, you know, in his book uh, Delivering Happiness, it's you know, have we gotten it wrong? Have we gotten it? The, do we do we pursue success for happiness when instead we should be pursuing happiness for success? And, you know, mm -hmm. and I wrote, and I talked about this in my TED talk um, in 2010. So yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer in this and it's, but there's, let's, but let's say one thing, Nick, you and I need to be careful on this. If you've had success in a sort of commercial way that people admire and give you and me some level of comfort, we have a privilege and it is easier for us to say, you know, go out and, and find the happiness and the success will come than the person who is struggling financially, struggling in their sense of self-confidence around their career path, etc. So I can see why people sometimes look for this external success because it's the thing that gives them the sense that they've made it. But as someone who has made it times in my life, as have you, once you get that in the palm of your hand, it shrinks. It's not as shiny, nor is it as good looking or as big. And now there's something shiny on the on the horizon that's like, oh, that's the next big thing. Yeah, and it and it can be somewhat one dimensional. And I do believe a lot of people chase that thing because of the perception of what it can give. And I think what I've you know had other people come on the show and talk about this as well. And you can say absolutely they're in the privileged position of having having some success, certainly financially but what sits on the other side of that success is interesting right mm -hmm. like it's not mm -hmm. always you know these amazing fairylands whatever right? right and i think that's the interesting thing so one of the, the big reasons i wanted to have you on the show is this topic uh, beautifully articulated today comes up all the time in my world yeah right yeah. and it's not to say that like you know all these people who have got reasonable net worths and all that sort of stuff you know, aren't they the greatest, luckiest people in the world? Quite often, they can be the most conflicted people in the world. That's right? so true. So true. So it's fascinating. So 
Modern, let's talk a little bit. So if people want to reach out about um, mm -hmm. Modern Elder Academy and you, your book is Learning to Love Midlife. That's coming out soon. Le Learning to Love Midlife, uh, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. You can find it on Amazon or uh, you know any online store. Um, <clears throat> ModernElderAcademy.com. You'll find that, chipconley.com. And I write a daily blog. It's called Wisdom Well. Um, and you can find that at the MEA website, but you can also find it... Uh, just Googling Chip Conley and Wisdom Well. I read it. It's very good. And it, I, I was looking at it today before this conversation yeah. thinking, how do you do that? It's a daily <laughs> blog. It's, I, I learned it from my friend, Seth Godin, who I went to business school with. He has a daily blog. Oh yeah, blog. he's been on our show. And, <laughs> yeah, and um, you you batch them. You write about 12 of them in a weekend and you get in the mood for it and you get in the flow and then you do it. But uh, yeah, I, I love that. I think if somebody wanted to really get a flavor of 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 my thinking and you know, without making a big commitment of writing, reading a book, um, the, the wisdom well blog post. And we also have online programs on the modern elder Academy website. So if you don't want to make the flight to, uh, ultimately Santa Fe, New Mexico next year or, uh, Baja now, um, yeah, go check out our, our online Love class. Uh, we will make sure that all of that is linked, um, into the show notes, but, um, I just want to say personally, it's been a pleasure having you here on the show today. Thank and as know. I said, I've been looking forward to this for some time. And, and just because it's a bit of a personal thing for me, right? Like, you know, going through the, the transitions that I, and I often say to people, right, particularly some of my older peer group friends I've known for a long time, and they kind of don't get what I did, right? Particularly the ones who knew me beforehand. And some of them I've had to let go a little bit as well because yep. Yep. of those reasons. But I often say, I said, like, what would life be like if, if I hadn't have started to ask some of those questions and we only touched on some of those questions that you do in your program here but i've asked myself that and if i hadn't have done that where would i be going and i yes. think i want to finish that by saying anyone listening to this <laughs> if you are asking those questions and you don't have an answer you you, you owe it to yourself <laughs> to start to to scratch that itch so to speak absolutely the most important question anybody can ask is what will I regret 10 years from now if I don't learn it or do it now? Love it. I think we'll finish with that. Chip Conley, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nick. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.